Amen. You can grab a seat. Good morning. My name is Ben, one of the pastors here at Hope Church, and we are thrilled that you're with us in this summertime as we are working through. It's always interesting as a pastor, you're trying to figure out what to preach next, right? That was what my grandpa always asked me, like, how do you have something else to say? It's like, well, the Bible's a big book. You just keep working through it. There's a lot there. Uh, but when you do a summer series, you got to figure out something that can be a little more isolated because people are traveling. They're in, they're out. And today, we're going to continue something we're calling Good Guides. We're just going to take snapshots of different people from Scripture and look at why are they there, what are they talked about, what, what is in their life that we need. Like, why did God include that person and their story uh, in the Scripture? And you would think that the kind of people that get included in those stories are going to be like really wonderful people, you know? Like, they, they made it into Scripture. They've got to be like the holiest of the holy uh, but they're not. You know, the people that we're going to look at, generally kind of crummy. Like, you know, they, they look a lot like us. Um, there's that old saying, like, if you don't have something nice to say, don't say anything at all. Uh, nobody told the Bible. You know, the Bible talks about people, and it's not very little nice to say. You know, every time David or, or Jack come up here and they say, welcome to Hope Church, you know, hey, Hope Church is a place of people from a lot of different backgrounds, you know, and then they list all the different backgrounds, and they say, we have one thing in common. We're all broken people. We need Jesus to put us back together. That's really sweet, right? No, it's not. He just called you a broken person. He said something negative about who you are. He doesn't even know you, but he knows that. Why? Well, the Bible is really consistent in talking about who we are. It's consistent and it's, it's honest. The Bible tells what the human condition is like. I don't know how many of you guys are like, news hounds. Uh, I like reading the local news. Uh, and there was a story this past week about Davis County. There was a, a group within Davis County and their job is to kind of be, you know, sort of aware of what are in the libraries, what kind of resources the kids have access to, just in case something were to slip through and be a little weird. And uh, one of the different resources that came up recently uh, was the Bible. It went up for review for whether or not it was appropriate to have in the school system. Uh, and, you know, they read it or they, like, reviewed the story. Somebody got the cliff notes and they said, no, this is not appropriate for uh, elementary and middle school. Now, I know you're supposed to feel outraged. I do, too. But uh, they got a point a little bit. <laughs> They've got a point a little bit, not because the Bible doesn't give the, everybody what we need for salvation in life, but because the Bible does describe humanity as we really are. And in that description... There's some violence. And in that description, there's some stuff that, um, you know, maybe young readers don't necessarily need to, to get unfiltered. We laugh about Noah's Ark. I don't know if you've ever seen like a kid's nursery and the parents put up like a Noah's Ark um, wallpaper around the edge and it's got the boat and the animals. You got the giraffes kind of hanging their head over the edge and everything. So cute, right? Well, read that story in scripture. That story is about God like, punishing all of the world with death, except for the people that are on that little pastel boat that you put on your kid's uh, nursery. Like, the stories that are in Scripture describe things that are real and true. And some of the ones that are at, at the most surprising points, some of the ones that have some of the most, on the surface, some of the most repellent elements are actually the ones that give us the most information. And today's story fits into that um, mold. Uh, I don't know uh, if you've heard this story, but if you go to Genesis chapter 22, 
So if you have a copy of the scriptures, you can turn or tap your way to Genesis. We'll be a little bit around Genesis. We'll be in Hebrew some as well. And John and second, and we'll be all over the place. But if you have Genesis chapter 22, then at least you'll know where it is. You can reference it later. That's the part of scripture that tells our story for today about this guy named Abraham. And in this story, Abraham is called by God to sacrifice his son. So in the story, you have a guy that is very loved by God being called by God to sacrifice his son, to kill and then burn his son as a way to show his loyalty to the Lord, as a way to do something. It was some kind of a religious rite that God called him to. And of all the stuff you're going to read about in Scripture, this is one of those moments where you go, I'm not sure this was supposed to be in there. Like if, if you had the right to go in and move stuff around and clip some stuff out, this might be one of the ones where you're like, oh, they, some, some brutal race early on as they were copying God's scriptures must have added this in there because there's no way that this is what God put in his scriptures. And yet what I want to show you today is that in this story, and it's the reason that of all of Abraham's life, we're only going to do two things. We did the one last week and then we're doing the one this week. If we've only got two stories to tell about Abraham, this made it. The reason is because this story, I think, has in it every element that's in all of Scripture. I think, that I, nobody ever cares what the title of a sermon is, but the title of the sermon is The Bible in a Single Story, because in this story, we get crazy, we get scary, but we get elements that show us perfectly from the first book of Scripture what God's going to do thousands of years later in Christ's life. And thousands of years later after that, in your life today. So let's start reading. In, in Genesis chapter 17, now if you don't have a copy of the Bible, we're going to have the verses on the screen for you, so don't worry about that. But if you don't even like have a copy of the Bible in a, in a modern English translation, we'd love to give you one on your way out. So please give me the honor of, of helping you with that. But Genesis chapter 17. We've been talking about this guy, Abraham. We, we talked about him last week. He was just a guy. He was an idolater in the land of Ur of the Chaldees, what we know um, as the Sumerian culture. It's a very ancient culture that we have a lot of archaeology on. And God called this guy Abraham and said, hey, you're going to come with me. I'm going to show you a land. I'm going to give you a land, and I'm going to make you into a great nation. He promised further that through Abraham, all the world would be blessed. That's a really key thing with Christianity. I, I, I want to kind of say it, even though we don't have time to talk about it too much, but I want to say it. God doesn't just bless you to bless you. Uh, most people think that the things they do here are for them. Yeah, but no. Like God did bless Abram, but he was really clear that the blessing that he gave to Abraham was going to be a blessing for the world, that he wasn't just blessing Abraham, but he was then going to, through Abraham, bless the world. What you receive when you get Bible, when you spend time with the Lord, when the Spirit works in your life in some way, that's not just for you. God actually takes that and then goes through you to other people. That's why camp is so important. Camp is important because we're going to pour into those kids. Yes. Camp is also important because those kids are then going to pour into each other. And out into the world. Uh, we talk about in student ministry, the, the vision of our student ministry is to connect students to the Lord, connect students to their parents, but also to connect students to other students. 
And that's because as we connect them to the Lord and connect them to each other, they're going to be giving the blessings that God gives them to one another. They're going to comfort each other with the comfort with which God comforts them. It's a mouthful, but it's from 2 Corinthians 1, and it's true. That's what we see in Abraham's life. God didn't just call Abraham out, and as we talked about last week, in fact, it was pretty rough on Abraham. He ended up with a lot of resources, but he had to walk away from everything that made sense in order to get God's blessing. He didn't just promise to give him a land. He also promised to make him the father of a great nation. So in Genesis 17, he says, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. Down in verse 4. Verse 5 says, No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations plural, and kings shall come from you. And Abraham laughed. Look what it says in in verse 17. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, is his wife, who is 90 years old, bear a child? Now, as far as jokes go, yeah, it's a pretty good one, I guess. I don't know that it's really nice to go up to some old lady and say, imagine you having a baby. (laughs) You know, I don't know that that would be a very nice thing to do. But if you know any 90-year-old women, just visualize that person, please. And then just think, are you expecting a birth announcement? No, of course not. You're, You're not looking for something like that. It is incongruous. It is incongruous, however you pronounce that word. You wouldn't expect it. So he does laugh, and he laughs on purpose. He laughs at the promise that God made that, that he's not just going to have kids. He's going to have so many kids that it's going to be a nation. No, he doesn't say nation. He says a multitude of nations. I don't know how many kids you plan on having. I have a weird last name. So I feel like I can track it. Like I'm going to be able to know how prolific we are out in the world. I had all girls, so, you know, we're done. But, but then my <laughs> brothers have had boys, you know, and so I don't know. We'll see what happens. I don't know that I'm hoping for nations, plural, but this was God's promise to Abraham. And then he and Sarah are given a son. By faith, it says in Hebrews 11, by faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. So Sarah laughed. She thought it was hilarious to think that she would have a baby. She didn't know how it was going to happen. It's the dumbest thing in the world to say some lady like that, for whom these things are not possible, would have a baby. And yet, she considered God faithful who had promised. And therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, again, very funny, were born descendants, as many as the stars of heaven, and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. God brought death from life. He, he took something that wasn't and he made it into something, something miraculous and something that was very fruitful. And then he goes a lot further. If you go down to verse 17 of Hebrews 11, it says, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering, offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. What's going on here? Abraham lived a long life. 
And then God called him. After God called him, he lived a long life. And then God blessed him. He finally gave him the child of promise, this one that was named Isaac. Isaac means laughter. They had him name the kid after the fact that they didn't believe him, <laughs> that they laughed when God said they would have babies. And that child of promise was then demanded. God called Abraham to take his son and sacrifice him. So in Genesis 22, which tells this story, Abraham wakes up early the next morning and he takes Isaac with some servants and fire and a knife and goes hiking. They go to a place called Mount Moriah, which we'll talk about again in a second. And he lays his son down on the wood and he lifts his knife to slaughter the child of promise. In that moment, before that moment, we as the reader are checked out. Like the, when you do storytelling, you have to make the main character in some way accessible to your audience because you want them to sympathize. You want them to put themselves into that character. He can be unruly, we're unruly, but there's got to be something that draws you in. And yet as you're reading the story of Abraham, you get to this point and you go, no, no, nah, this is gross. Abraham lifts the knife above Isaac and God stops it in that moment. An angel comes down and says, no, 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 good job, Abraham. Now I know that you would not even keep from me your only son. And they look around and there's a ram with its horns caught in a bush nearby. And so they take that ram and they kill him and they burn him. They sacrifice him as a, a sacrifice of atonement to the Lord. And then the story just continues. Now, we as readers, again, we have a hard time with something like this, but I want you to see the beauty of it, and I want you to see how the whole message of Scripture is actually in this one story. The comfort of the gospel is in this one story. When Reagan gets baptized, she's going to show you this same story. Why? Well, what God does here is he taps into what we have always been as humanity. If you go back to the very beginning of Genesis, it describes God's creation of us. And it doesn't just say, and then it was funny, so he made a man. You know, he made an animal, and then he made a talking animal. He was creative, and he created another thing. It says, in fact, that God made us in his own image. That means a lot of stuff. But at its root, it means that we now reflect God to the world in the way that the monkeys or the daffodils don't. We are now his image bearers to the world. So as Abraham goes and does this, he does this as one who reflects God to the world. Understanding the whole storyline of Scripture, we know for sure that Abraham represents God because we have a father sacrificing his son. Now, I don't know what you know about Scripture, but in Christianity, we consider Jesus to be God. And we consider the life and the ministry of Jesus to be the headline of the revelation that God's given to humanity. And within that life and ministry, there's one thing that is the, the pinnacle, according to Jesus, of what he was doing and what he was living for. It was to die. To die on a cross. That cross is now the symbol of Christianity because it is the main point of Christianity. We say that on the cross, God the Father killed, 
God the Son, as an atonement for the world. Now, we're going to get into the meaning of that momentarily, but I want to back up for just a second and talk about the meaning of the story of Abraham um, being called to sacrifice Isaac. You have the father holding a knife above the son of promise, and you can imagine his heart breaking. You know, we want to separate ourselves from somebody who would do something like that. Well, take a second not to. Take a second to put yourself in those shoes and think about what it would actually be to know that the God of the universe had called you to this thing. To do this to the child that you, just, you didn't just love because everybody loves their kids. You also had the fullness of your life, like the whole meaning of your life based on. We're always trying to counsel parents away from that. Like, don't have your kid play the sport you played because you're going to make them, like, do what you never did, you know? Like, you scrubbed out as a sophomore, but you're going to do everything to make sure that they get into a college program, and you're going to, like, ruin their life trying to live through them. Yeah, don't do that. But for Abraham, God had given him prophecy. He, like, knew that this child was the prophecy. This child was the promise. His life's meaning was going to be fleshed out, literally, through this child. And he holds the knife over the neck of his own son. Now, I, I want you to feel that for a second. Because this is the picture of God and, and Christ on the cross. This is the picture of what the father experienced. It says in John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Well, what does gave his only son mean? It doesn't just mean allowed him to live on earth for 33 years. It actually means his death on the cross. In that way, God didn't just view your suffering or somehow take your suffering and find a way to, to put a silver lining around it. This means that in Christianity, we worship a God who engaged in your suffering. He didn't just allow you to experience what it's like to be this sort of orphan in a fallen world. He actually grabbed that suffering and put the lion's share on himself. Biblical scholar named D.A. Carson, he says, The God on whom we rely knows what suffering is all about. Not merely in the way that God knows everything, but by experience. There are massive portions of the Old Testament that most people just sort of glaze over through. It's called the prophets. You have the major prophets, these big long ones, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. And then you have the minor ones that go a lot faster, Hosea, Jonah. But don't glaze over those books. If you ever do like a Bible in a year reading plan or something like that, don't pass over those books. As you read those books, you're going to experience the heart of God as he suffers. Because we have broken his law. We've separated ourselves from him. And that separation is excruciating to one who loves. So much so that he goes through this process. He, he gave his only son because he so loved you. Abraham perfectly shows us this experience. And Isaac perfectly shows us 
Christ. Think about this. I, I talked about the, the promise. Well, well, understand for a second what I mean by that. There's a guy named Glenn Schreiber who talks about it. He says, picture baby Isaac lying in Abraham's arms. So we're not talking about teenage Isaac that's being sacrificed. We're talking about little miracle laughter baby Isaac. What do you have when you see that little baby? You have the hope of the world. No Isaac, no Israel. No Israel, no Christ. No Christ, no salvation. So whatever you do, Abraham, don't drop that baby. You can drop other babies, but don't drop... No, of course, don't drop any baby. But don't drop that baby. That's the baby. All the nations of the world are going to be blessed through that baby. And that's the one that God calls to sacrifice. Why? Because God is perfectly showing what will be. The son of the promise, the one on whom all the world depends, now becomes this tiny little lens through which we can see the real son of the promise. When you go into the New Testament, you find that Jesus is, in fact, that son of the promise that we're talking about, that Isaac is really just a placeholder, a, a, a progenitor of. It says in Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman. We've talked about this verse. Most of the verses here we were repeating regularly because I need you to know them. There's other verses. We could be cool and come up with lots of different places in Scripture that say the same thing. But I'm going to say them from the same verses because I need you to know them. In the very beginning of Scripture, when we fall, God curses the enemy. And he curses that enemy, that serpent, the dragon, Satan, by saying, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. And in Galatians, in the New Testament, we understand that he's, he puts a lot of importance on the fact that we have a singular there, his offspring, singular. Because it means there is one who is coming who will break the head of the serpent, but in doing so will be bruised. He'll crush the enemy, but in doing so will be crushed. When we see Isaac, it's showing us perfectly what will be through Jesus. You have the son of the promise who has brought up this place called Moriah, this mountain Moriah. I had a New Testament professor that talked about when he was teaching his little girl to read. Every time she hit a word she didn't know, she'd just say, sailboat. So she said, the red cat fell on the sailboat. Hey, you know, and just keep going. And he said, Christians do that every day. Whenever you get to a place in Scripture, you just go, sailboat, and keep moving. No, these places matter. Like, it would be good if you knew some of where these places are. They don't matter the most. Learn all this stuff first if you want to. But they matter. And they matter because God chooses certain places and he, he maps other things onto those same places in order to connect some of those experiences across thousands of years. You have in Abraham the call to sacrifice Isaac and he takes him up this mountain called Moriah. You fast forward through scripture and you get through David to Solomon when he goes to build the temple, the place where sacrifices are going to be done, where others will be crucified, killed. Now it's animals, but it's innocent animals. It's animals without blemish that are killed and then burned for the atonement of the people. That's what the function of the temple was. It was to be this place where God's presence was. But the thing that's happening there is the sacrifice that goes on. There's other things that happen there. But the headline 
is these sacrifices that happen there, these sacrifices that include the death of these animals. Why? 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 It's all pointing forward. What Abraham did is supposed to connect us to what God does through Solomon, 2 Chronicles 3. Then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to David his father at the place where David had appointed on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. We talked about that a couple weeks ago, and I would love to talk about it, but we're already out of time. So, so, so what do we have here? We have Isaac, who is the son of the promise, and he is brought to the place to be crucified where the temple will be built, where the sacrifice would continue to happen. And look at how he's killed. So in Genesis 22, it says in verse 6, Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. So it's time to go. God commands him to do this incredible, awful terrible, scary, disgusting, blessed thing. He wakes up early the next morning to do it. He gathers wood for the sacrifice, and he's an old man, so he puts it on the young man's back. Isaac has to carry the wood up the mountain to where he will be sacrificed. I want you to see that because Jesus carries the cross up the mountain to where he will be sacrificed. Now, it's not a mountain, but it's this Golgotha. It's a hill. He has to climb up carrying this wood in the same way that Isaac did. And what Abraham brings is a sword, a dagger, a knife, and a flame. That's because the burnt offering was killed first, but then burned as an atonement for the sin of the people who were making the sacrifice. When Jesus goes to the cross, he's killed in a really graphic way. Go read through the crucifixion account and then maybe, you know, give Davis County a little bit of grace. When Jesus is killed, he's scourged with a cat of nine tails. He has a crown of thorns pressed into his skull. He's beaten. His beard is pulled out. He's forced to carry this cross up to the place where he would be crucified. He's then laid onto a wooden cross and nailed to that cross. And then they pick up the cross and drop it down, and he suffocates, because that's how you're killed on a cross. It hurts to have your hands and feet nailed to a piece of wood, but it doesn't kill you. What kills you is that your lungs can't get any air, so you have to press against those nails in order to breathe and then hang back down on the things that are holding you up against the wood. So eventually you would, you would suffocate. Now, that is a degree of physical torture that is, to use the right word, excruciating. The crew in the middle of excruciating is the cross, crucifixion. It's really physically painful to be killed like that. But the headline of Scripture, and, and I'm trying to make this point from several different places really, really quickly, but is that when Jesus died, he didn't just receive a physical death like you and I deserve. He also endured the wrath of God for our sin, which he did not deserve, but you and I do. And that's what's being represented by that fire there. If you ever read through the New Testament, you find that Jesus repeatedly talks about hell. Now, pastors get made fun of for always talking about hell, but I don't know. If we're Jesus followers and Jesus preachers, we should talk about what he talked about. And he repeatedly talks about hell. One instance of many, Matthew 25, he says, then the Lord will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and for his angels. 
Imagine the devil with like a cape and a pitchfork and he's got his little horns and his, <laughs> you know, he's got the like curly mustache. That version of the devil is cartoonish. But our cultural understanding of hell as a place of fire isn't. It's something that goes back to how Jesus taught about hell. And to quote the pastor that we've talked a lot about recently, Dr. Keller, he, he said, you know, people come up to him and say, you don't believe in a literal hell, do you? Like literal fire? And he goes, no, no. And they go, oh, good. He goes, no, I, I believe hell will be much worse. Why? Because hell and, and the fire of hell is a metaphor for a place where God's judgment does pour out on you forever. And it's a judgment that's active, but it's also a judgment that's just retributive. It's, it's, what, you, it's what you choose when you choose not God. It's what you choose when you choose to be satisfied by what will never satisfy. It's what you choose when you reject the one thing that really will satisfy. This is super heavy. I'm sorry. I, I, did, I am the one that picked, you know, we're going to go through these stories. But I can't just give you morality tales. I have to tell you what the Bible says. And the Bible says that when Jesus died on the cross, he endured the wrath of God for our sin. That means he endured the hell that you and I deserve. And so you, you got a couple of options to do with this. When you see that we also have touched the fruit, we also have broken the law, we also deserve to be separated from the Father, literally the knife and the fire. You can do a couple of things there. The first option is that you never sin. Hey, you know, if you never break God's law, you'll never be punished. But unfortunately, that's already off the table, as Jack made clear. He already said that about you, that you have broken God's law. It's already done. You're broken people. So option one's off the table. Option two, you could allow the Lord to go about punishing you for what you've done. Now, we exist as a church because we don't want you to choose that option. But you can. The third option is, is the other thing that Abraham perfectly teaches us, which is by faith to receive Christ's sacrifice for you. Romans 5, while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. There's a million more things we need to talk about. The whole Bible is in this story, and the Bible's huge. I mean, there's so many things that connect into this. We haven't even touched on the resurrection. We haven't touched too much on what that faith actually feels like or produces in you. But, but let me end here with, with a quote. I've got another pastor named John Piper. He says, what is faith? Because that's what all this comes back to. All this comes back to how you react, those options. And that third option is a faith option, which says, yes, those things, though hard to hear, are true. The things that you have done are severe and maybe confusing, but also beautiful and loving and my only option. And so by faith, you just go, yes, please. You don't earn it, can't do it, but you can receive it. That's what we mean by faith. And, and what does that faith actually look like? What is faith? It is seeing the promises of God from afar and experiencing a change of values so that you desire the promises above what the world has to offer. 
It's a, a glad greeting of those promises from a distance with a heart, seeking to know them and cherish them and be satisfied by them so that a new kind of life emerges that is out of sync with the world, a, a life that leaves the, sacri- uh, the securities of home and builds a crib when you are 90. It's a, a faith that, uh, a security that lifts a knife over your most treasured earthly possession. Listen, if, if you're just still experiencing Christianity for the first time, you're investigating. Maybe this is your first time here. I'm sorry, they're not always this heavy. <laughs> but if you are, let's talk. Let, let's answer all the questions that go around something like this. But I, but I hope that you see that there's something here that's for you. We actually believe there's a threat, and we believe that this is the answer to that threat. And it's a loving response that gives you something beautiful that grows in you something satisfying, worth choosing. But, but if you already are a believer and you don't need to work through that stuff, you already have said yes, let me ask you to just choose this again. You know, when Abraham does this and he has this level of faithfulness, it's not so that he would be saved. It's because what God has done in him is so full and real that he chooses to trust God, even in this extreme circumstance. I know that many of you are enduring extreme circumstances. My hope and my prayer is that as you see Abraham, he becomes a good guide for you. One who is a little bit able to help you. Trust in the God who is this good. Have faith in the Lord who can lead you through. I don't know where you're at this morning, but we put cards in everybody's chairs. The the longer kind of white one is a way for you to let us know what's going on in your life. If you're new here and you want to let us know a little bit more about who you are so that we can reach out to you and get to know you, great. Fill out one of those cards. There's a wooden box right out there. You can drop it in on your way out. That would be great. If you are a believer and you're in an extreme circumstance, you're thinking about these things, and you want to think with us or you want us to just pray for you, also fill out one of those cards. I know we're dinosaurs. You have to do it with paper. But figure out how the pen works and then write on the thing and put it in the box and we'll pray for you. Because God's grace is for you. Yeah, it's, it's hard stuff to maybe understand, but it's not hard to receive. Let's pray that you would. Lord God and Heavenly Father, we ask you right now, as we go into this wonderful time where we're going to be doing a baptism, to help us to see and understand. Lord, a baptism says, I'm dead in my sin. That's why I have to be buried with Christ. But by faith, I'm trusting the Lord to be raised with him in a life like his. So as Reagan goes under the water, she's showing that she agrees with what Scripture says, that she is somebody who is far from you because of sin. And yet, Lord, she can be forgiven. She's put her faith and trust in you to bring her up out of the water. Just like figuratively, you brought Isaac up out of that sacrifice and put a ram there instead. And just like really, you put Christ there instead. He died so that we don't have to or so that the sting of death can be removed. Lord, will you let us see that and become a gospel people? Will you let some of those that are seeing it for the first time really understand it and believe it, Father? And if they're not ready to believe yet, will you at least let them see why they should want it to be true so that they can pursue some of those reasonable questions and find if there's evidence behind these answers? Lord, please glorify your name today and bless this sweet girl. pray these things in your son's holy name. Amen.